0: Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. This is the word of the Lord. You may have a seat. Yeah. Can
1: I grab that? Thanks. Well, good morning, Flourishing Grace. How are we today? Good. Well, as Ben just said, I'm Brett, and I'm so happy to be with you guys today. I know we don't know each other. It's the first time for most of us we've got to hang out. Like, I'm a childhood friend of Josh. We grew up together in Illinois. Now I serve at a church in... California, and like, okay, whatever, right? And yet, somehow, in the divine providence, the the great wisdom of God, he has you and me. Even if you're here by accident, maybe a friend drug you in this morning, he has us in the same room, and I think that he has a word for us, not from me, but a word from the scriptures to help us take next steps in that flourishing relationship with Jesus that I know he wants for every single one of us in this room. Uh, can I just start with a short word of prayer? Father God, we pause to acknowledge, we, we know you're already here, we know your spirit's already at work from the moments that we rose today and our, our feet hit the floor, you have already been at work in our lives, and we just pause to acknowledge it. And we say right now, God, with open hearts and open hands, have your way. Have your way in our hearts, have your way in our lives, have your way in this church, have your way in this city, God. God. Have your way. Your servants are listening. Would you speak to us through your word today? In Jesus' good name. Amen. Uh, We're going to start. We're going to get back into John 6. So if you have your Bibles, you can keep your finger in John 6, and we'll be back there in just a moment. We're going to begin, actually, on the other side of the world. We're going to begin in in Italy. And forgive my butchered pronunciations right off the bat, but, but there is this mausoleum, the mausoleum of Gala Placidia. Now, If you were to see this mausoleum, you would probably just walk right past it. If you didn't know it was a World Heritage site, you'd probably just stroll right past it because it's small, it's unassuming, it doesn't look all that splendid on the outside. But if you get inside, everything changes. It is adorned with the most beautiful, the most amazing, breathtaking mosaics all across the domed ceilings. Tourists come from all over the world to see these mosaics. They're not just made with, with um, bits of, of any kind of material or even stone. It's made with glass, colored glass that they've gotten from all over the area and put together painstakingly to make these beautiful mosaics of, of starry nights, of Bible scenes. You have Jesus as the good shepherd there with these like, tranquil uh, sheep around him and this beautiful meadow, breathtaking Art scholars have actually called it one of the most artistically perfect representations of Greco-Roman art. If you go to the tourist websites, they will say, you will hear from people who visited, breathtaking, stunning, absolute must. You got to go. Literally, I read an account of someone who said, I left that mausoleum in tears at the beauty of these mosaics. But be warned if you go to if, if Be warned if you go to Italy because all of a sudden you're going to recognize as you walk into that mausoleum, it wasn't exactly what you expected. Because, first of all, it's dark like, dark, dark like you can barely make out the mosaics, right? This was a, a mausoleum from made 1500 years ago by an emperor in Rome who was doing this in honor of his fallen sister. There was no electricity. There are windows there, but the windows are, are literally narrow slots made of, a, of an amber glass, and so they're not bringing in a lot of light. Scholars think that it was originally intended to be seen through the, the flickering light of a torch, making that mosaic come alive, but now it's it's, it's dark in there, right? And it's It's a World Heritage site, so it's full of tourists. Whether or not they know what they're seeing, they know they need to be in there, so they're crowding in shoulder to shoulder. You're pressing into large crowds. This is hot Italy over the summer. It's probably starting to stink a little bit, and and you would not be blamed. In fact, many people do this. They walk in, they hang out for about one minute, and they say, not for me, right? And then they sneak right back out to get some fresh air right outside that mausoleum. And then... As they're escaping the crowds and the smells of the tourists and the darkness of that room, they hear it, right? A collective awe, a gasp from inside the mausoleum. Suddenly, the room is flooded with light, and all the brilliance and the beauty of those mosaics come to life because somebody dropped a two-euro coin in the collection blocks. And then it goes dark again. It's about 15 seconds of light, 20 seconds of light, and then it's dark until somebody else stumbles their way in the darkness to that collection box and puts in another couple of euros. The thing is, like, I think there's a parable for us here, because like the tourists at the mausoleum, there are people, even people in this room, certainly people throughout our city, people who've who've heard about the beauty and the goodness and the grace and the joy and the all that is in Jesus. They've heard rumors of life transformation and salvation and redemption, signs of of God among us. But they go in and and maybe as they come into the church they only catch a a glimpse of that brilliance, just a flash of light. There are some who've who've grown frustrated at these rumors and maybe they've chose to to leave the building, to stand outside, to maybe think it was overblown. Some of us have, have settled for momentary glimpses of the presence of God, as the lights pop on, and we try to hold on to that, to for for that one experience of God to to navigate, to propel, to move forward our spiritual lives. And hold on to it for weeks or months. And there's somebody in this room that's probably been holding on to, to experience for for a year, trying to live off of that energy, but it's back in the darkness. But the truth is, in Jesus Christ, we have been been invited into intimacy with God, a life in which the lights of, of experiencing the awe and the beauty and the goodness of God are always on, right? Where we're always in the presence of that beauty and that goodness. We don't have to settle for less. We don't have to settle for walking outside giving up on it. We don't have to settle for the lights flickering on or off. There are some in Jesus' day who were hoping to see a sign, hoping to see some flicker of light of the opportunity to experience God, and they walked away disappointed in John 6. Let's read our text again, and let me just paint a little bit of context here. Jesus has just finished feeding through miraculous power, a sign of God among them, 5,000, 5, just the men, right? So maybe up to 10, 12,000 folks, but at least 5,000 men were in that crowd with two fish and five loaves of bread. And so the crowd, that caught their attention as it would, right? That, that is something amazing. And they wanted More. And so they chased Jesus down. They literally crossed over the Sea of Galilee to find out where he went. And we pick it up again in verse 25. When they found Jesus on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Note, note that verse. We're going to come back to this. You're seeking me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God that you "'Believe in him whom he sent.' "'So they said to him, "'Then what sign do you do that that we may see and believe you? "'What work would you perform? "'Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness as it is written. "'He gave them bread from heaven to eat.' "'Jesus said to them, "'Truly, truly, I say to you, "'it was not Moses who gave you bread from heaven, "'but the Father gives you true bread from heaven.' For the, bread that he, the, for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to this world. And they said, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. In this passage, we have a problem, and an invitation. And we're going to start with the, the problem. You see, the things that fill our lives cannot fulfill our souls. The things that fill our lives cannot fulfill our lives. All right, don't confuse the things that fill up our schedule that take up our time, that use our energy, that that bring and grab our our attention with the things that fulfill our lives, right? Jesus said, or excuse me, the the crowd said, or Jesus said to the crowd in verse 26, you're looking for me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate your fill. You had food. You were satisfied. It was amazing. This is why you are here, Jesus said, "You missed the sign, right? Jesus is pointing to this fact that feeding the five thousand was a a sign. What does a sign do? A sign points to something. It, it exclaims a reality, right? You're in a, a 35 zone. Slow down, right? It's it's screaming to the world for the world to see this reality that is right and present in front of it. And so it is with the signs that Jesus gives throughout the Gospel of John. It's this reminder that that heaven is now intersecting." earth, that that in Jesus, the very presence and power of God, of heaven, is revealed and is available. Divine power, divine grace, divine presence. And Jesus is saying, you didn't pursue me because you saw the sign. You're not pursuing me because you know what God is up to and heaven is breaking through and, and I am revealing God's glory to you. No, no, you're pursuing me Because of your appetite for this world. You want to be filled. The truth is, I want to be filled. I think for a lot of us, we go through life, we want to be filled. And this world, our world today, it has a lot of things that can fill us. A lot of things that fill our schedule. We have the technology, right? We have distractions on our person. Right at all times. We don't need to deal with boredom. We don't need to deal with discomfort anymore. We can be filled. We have travel sports. We have groups we can be with. We have groups we can stay away from if we don't want to be with other people. Right? We can fill our lives, and I know some of you, my guess is most of you, we're so incredibly busy. Our lives are filled with things to do. Gadgets, distractions, entertainment, work projects. There's a, a sweet. Sweet lady at the church, I pastor in California, and she's got to be 85 if she's a day old. And every week, she's the first one in to the worship center before service. And I ask her, how was your week, Becky? And Becky at 85, she says, so busy. And i this is my mistake. I didn't know this about about uh, folks uh, I thought when you retired, you slowed down and you relaxed, but apparently it's exactly the opposite, right? They always tell me, I don't know how I had time to work. And Becky at 85 is going 90 miles per hour from this appointment to that appointment to this practice to this choir to that other thing. Like she is, I know in her heart and her soul, she has said, I'm getting ready for the next life. God has a call on my life heavenward, but she's running towards it at 90 miles per hour, right? She's not gonna quietly slip in to heaven. We are busy, our lives are full They're filled with things that can do. Our culture does not suffer from a lack of things that fill us. But I think part of Jesus' warning here is that those things don't fulfill us. They aren't made, even if they're good things that we're filling our lives with, they're not made to bear the weight of our souls. They can't, right? Busyness is a cheap substitution for significance. Crowds are a cheap substitute for community. Activity is a cheap substitute for significance, for impact, for effect. Distractions are a cheap substitute for reflection. You know, these who are coming after Jesus, this crowd, they weren't hungering for Jesus. They wanted something from Jesus. And as I say those words, like, that's like a little bit of a punch in the gut because I think, how often do I come to Jesus because I want something from him? I want the blessing. I want to make sure he knows about this need or, or this neighbor or this situation. I, I have my to-do list I want him to give attention to. But he's saying, hold on, you want something from me, but are we hungering for Jesus? Something that, that won't just fill our life, but will fulfill it. So what do we do in the midst of all this busyness and all this, these things that promise to fill our lives, even good things? Well, sometimes I think the best thing in front of us, even though our tendency is to add, right? I think sometimes the best thing in front of us is actually to subtract. Subtract. A lot of us are hardwired. In fact, there is good research to say we are all hardwired to add things to our life. When we have a problem, our solution is to add. If we have a spiritual problem, we want to add, add, add. By our nature, we're wired for more. I was reading a study just a couple weeks ago in a book, and and it it named this engineer, Lydie Colts. And and Lydie discovered this same truth, but from a different angle, from an engineer's perspective. You see, Colts is a engineer professor today he's got a background in civil and structural engineering he's actually pretty renowned in that world he teaches engineers he's helped uh, navigate multi-million dollar grants from the government government for engineering like he he thought he was kind of a big deal in the engineering world and then he sat down with his three-year-old son and played legos and immediately was humbled because you see what happened is they're building a bridge, and they they'd created the span of the bridge, and then they're beginning to each create a pillar to support it on each side. And, and when they bring those pillars together, they recognize that they hadn't built it at the same height, and so it was a little bit wonky, catawampus, off, off level, and that, that's not going to do, right? So the engineer, he does what is second nature to him. He says, okay, let me find the right bricks to add to this bridge to make it right. And while he's look, looking for bricks and spending that time, by the time he turns back around, he says, uh, well, My son already fixed the problem. But while my my gut, my intuition, my assumption is to add, my son just took away from the bridge and more efficiently, more effectively solved the problem. And and he got this PhD in engineering wondering what other biases do we bring that, you know, what other biases do I bring to engineering? And he began to ask his, his students and his fellow professors to solve this issue with the bridge, and they all did the same thing. They all, as he, brought, as he carried his Legos around the campus, they all added Legos. He worked it out into a test where they, it wasn't just Legos, it was all sorts of things. He saw, man, humanity is wired to want to turn to more. It's like the only tool in our belt. When we have a problem, what can we add to make a solution? It's hardwired in us, is what Colt's found. We systematically look overlook the option to subtract. You see, wanting to have more, wanting to have our lives filled with with stuff, with things, with activities, with people, with options, with opportunities, isn't evil in and of itself. It's not bad, but what if it can't solve the problem in our souls? What if adding can't solve our deepest needs? Or what what if in order to add the right thing, we first have to subtract some things. You see, that's what Lent is all about. As Ben said earlier, we're in this season of Lent leading us up into Easter and, and, and Lent has often been associated with a season of fasting. Fasting is, is really just proactively subtracting some things from our lives to remind us that although they fill our lives, they do not fulfill our lives. And sometimes people fast from food or chocolates or sweets or alcohol or technology or or habits like, okay, first thing in, in the morning, I look at my phone, no, no I'm, I'm gonna... Set that aside. There are all sorts of things we can fast from, but fasting reminds us. Fasting from the busyness and the distractions and the buzzers and the noises of this world reminds us that although they feel so urgent in the moment, they're ultimately not that important. Fasting level sets our hearts to receive the good that we need. You see, we fast from this world so that we can feast on Jesus. That's what he's going to tell us here in verse 35. Jesus is the provision of for life to the full life fulfilled the solution to our hearts' longing verse 35 Jesus said simply this I am the bread of life you know Jesus is interacting with this crowd and and, and they're recalling this story in Israel's history when The Hebrew people were were redeemed out of slavery, rescued from slavery in Egypt. God not only miraculously pulls them out of the the, the clutches of this mighty pharaoh and the most mighty army in the times, he brings them miraculously across the Red Sea on dry ground. And now that they're on the other side, they're wandering, or they're beginning to go through the desert, and almost immediately they said, oh, no. God, we don't have what we need. You haven't provided for us out here. We're going to just die. And they began to say, maybe it's better to be slaves in Egypt than to be wandering this desert. And so God, as God does, provides for them manna, bread from heaven. God's way of saying, I've got this, I've got you, I'm a provider. It's a sign from heaven about what God was up to. And so now all of a sudden, the crowd says, Jesus, what's your sign? Even though you just provided this bread that we overlooked and we just really want to be fed. What's the sign that we know? Like, can you do this same thing? Bring us manna, even though he just did that. And Jesus says, No, no, I'm, I'm not going to recreate this miracle for you. In fact, what I want you to see is my life fulfills this miracle. What you didn't know about the manna in, Egypt, in the desert when they came out of Egypt is that it actually is a foreshadowing of the way that God would provide through me, through Jesus. He says, I am the bread. I am the bread of life. Jesus didn't intend to recreate this miracle that their forefathers and their ancient ancestors had experienced. Instead, he wanted to fulfill it. Just like God provided through this manna to take care of the needs of his people wandering in the desert, Jesus Jesus says, I am God's provision for you. Whatever the needs of your soul, the answer is Jesus. Whatever God requires from us, it's been provided for us in Jesus. Whatever the next step God has for you towards a flourishing life in Christ, Jesus provides us the resources, the life, the grace, the path forward. We don't have to look for another. The crowd wanted a sign, and Jesus said, I'm Him. I'm the sign. I'm the one you're looking for. I am the place where heaven intersects earth. You see, we fast from this world in this Lenten season. We fast from this world so that we can feast on Jesus. That's what He's inviting us to do when He says, I am the bread of life, right? Fasting means cutting something out of our lives, but feasting means diving in with both feet. It means no holding back, right? Burn the ships, get to work. I am feasting right now. I'm not counting calories. I'm not worried about the repercussions. I'm celebrating, right? We go into Thanksgiving. We already go in with our our belt, a couple couple notches loose, right? Because we're feasting. We're going to devour. We're going to consume. We are going to be filled with the good things of the feast, And so in this language, Jesus is saying, come to rely on me, come to depend on me, come to be filled with me, feast on me. I am the bread of life. I am the solution to the longings of your soul. And unlike the things of this world, I made your soul. I can bear the weight of your needs. I can care for you. I think another way of describing this is, is that you and I were made... For intimacy with God. You know, intimacy, it it simply means the relationship or the nearness with someone else. If you have a close friend, God is saying, I have made you to walk with me in that sort of way, that you would know my heart and I would know your heart, that there would be nothing that stands between us. There'd be vulnerability, there'd be openness. In fact, the the Mishnah, a collection of Jewish rabbinical sayings that was written down and published hundreds of years later but is understood to be from around the time of Jesus, one of the blessings that they would give to disciples, to followers of teachers, was that may you be covered with the dust of your rabbi, right? Would you follow after? Would you have such an intimate, close, personal relationship with your rabbi? You'd walk so closely behind them on these dusty streets and roads and paths in the ancient world that you would be covered with the dust they kick up. Everything in their life you get a chance to see. What they do, you are a part of. You, you are so close. And so it is with the followers of Jesus. Intimacy is the is the foundation of the spiritual life that He has and intends for you and for me. The, the vision of the kind of spiritual flourishing that Jesus has for you and for me. It begins with intimacy. And intimacy with God. If we get this clogged up, don't be surprised that nothing else flows. This is the starting point. So so what is intimacy, right? It's simply we could talk about being with Jesus, following closely after, having our hearts open to, knowing the heart of Jesus and opening our hearts to be known by Jesus, Call it the, the with Jesus life, but, but Jesus calls it something else. He calls it abiding. Right, Pastor John introduced us to that word last week, if you were here, and gave a great message. Check it out. What does it look like to abide in Jesus? Because Jesus says, abide in me as also I abide in you. It could be translated remain, to rest, to stay, to dwell. I like this one, to make your home in. Make your home in me as I make my home in you, but to abide, to be with Jesus. It's not a new idea. Jesus taught it. In fact, throughout church history, we see a lot of different ways that the church has described this, this way of, of prayer and presence and acknowledgement, of having our hearts open and vulnerable before God. Paul called it prayer without ceasing. Well, if we think about prayer just as something we start and we say amen and it's over, then we can't do this. But if, if prayer is not just an action but an environment, a way of being before God, then, then yes, Paul says pray without ceasing. St. John of the Cross calls it silent love to remain on with loving attention on God. Brother Lawrence called it practicing the presence of God. The Quakers called it centering down, right, getting back to the bedrock of your faith. The Jesuits called it the sacrament of of the present moment. A beautiful picture to say, hold on, God is, it wants to intersect with your life and your world, right here, right now, in this present moment, there's a holy happening. A.W. Tozer called it habitual conscious communion. Dallas Willard called it the with God life. They say, as we abide, as we abide with Jesus, we're still being discipled by Jesus. You see, the invitation to discipleship, the invitation to follow Jesus isn't something that happened just to the 12 and then it's kind of like good luck to them, right? Or or these these kind of superstars in the faith. Instead, we are being invited to follow Jesus, to be discipled by Jesus, to be apprenticed by him. And it continues on today as we walk in the spirit. Jesus promised this, I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate, to help you and to be with you forever. Today, Jesus apprentices us apprentices us through his Holy Spirit. We're with him when we walk in the Spirit. To walk in the Spirit is to walk with Jesus, with our rabbi, our teacher, our master, be covered in the dust of his feet. See, intimacy with God isn't a feeling, isn't a moment in worship where we we have this spiritual high or this amazing moment. It's a habit. Intimacy with God is a a habit of acknowledging his presence and saying, God, I want to walk with you. Keep me aware of what you're doing in my life and around my life each moment. the The call to feast on the bread of life, that call is a call to intimacy with God. Through prayer and presence. Because the reality is as we as we learn to love God like that, as we learn to be sensitive to where the Father is at work, and Jesus told us, right? Even Jesus said, I can only do what I see the Father doing. We as followers of Jesus should only do what we see God doing, but we have to cultivate a heart to see where he's at work. We cultivate that in- intimacy through prayer, and it boils over in our life as we begin to, to rely on the Holy Spirit. We join him with where he's at work. But it doesn't just remain with us because all of a sudden when we're joining God with what he's doing in the world around us, we're saying, God, you're also at work in my neighbor's life, in my coworker's life. And so it, it overflows, the spiritual life overflows from us to our neighbor as we, as we engage with everyone, as we love, as we serve with compassion, as we make disciples truth is, and I'm guilty of this, some of us we want to do great things for God. We see this with the crowd, right? How how do we do the work of God? We want to do great things for God. But we cannot until we are with God. When we invest in intimacy with Jesus, then we're in the right place where God can use us. But we have to first build on that bedrock. Jesus says, I only, can do, I only do what I see the Father doing. And, and sometimes I think it's healthy for us to ask, God, what are you doing around me? What are you doing in my life? How can I join in with what you want to do? And I can only do that when my heart is attuned to the heart of God, when I can learn to recognize his voice and his fingerprints, when I can walk by his spirit. And as we do, Jesus invites us. That's what it looks like to feast on me. I am the bread of of life, come and have your fill. Find your purpose. Find the life I have for you. And the truth is, I think one of the maybe as we are invited into this life with Jesus, one of the the underrated or maybe overlooked characteristics of a disciple is courage. Because this way of life isn't simply taking you know checking off a to do list of how we please God or kind of our religious rituals and rites and, and expectations. This is actually. This is actually can be a little scary. We have to let go of control. He might invite us to risk. He might invite us to unknown places. He might invite us to, to extend beyond what we can control. Call us to be a little vulnerable. It might be a little messy. But learning to walk with Jesus, having the courage to do that doesn't mean that we aren't scared. It doesn't mean that, that, that we're not trusting him in unknown places. To have courage means to do it even when we are scared and to know that he is good and take him at his word. As I think about that mausoleum in Italy and those flashes of light where people experience the beauty and the awe and then it's gone. Or some people give up on it and walk out of the building altogether. Now remember, that's not God's vision for you. That's not the life he wants for you. Don't settle for momentary flashes of the presence of God when he has created you to live in the light, to enjoy his presence, to know the awe and the beauty and the goodness of what's around you and his love to you. So live in the light. Choose intimacy. Feast on the bread of life. Chase that fullness of life in Jesus. Pursue it. Make it your life's passion. Make it what you are about. Because the truth is, this is why Jesus came. That you would have life and life abundant and knows that that could only be revealed when the creator of all things came, put on flesh to dwell among us, to reveal the glory of God. And nowhere do we see that more clearly than on the cross of Jesus. Where Jesus looked and told with his life that the God, the sovereign over all the universe, so deeply loves you and wants you to know his grace, he would let nothing stand in the way. No sin, no shame, nothing in your past, no baggage you're bringing, no hurt. None of that would have sovereignty or providence over your life. But in the cross of Jesus, he died in our place and for our sins so that you could know the depth and the goodness And the provision of the love of God to you in Jesus. So today we hear Jesus' call. All who are weary, come to me. Walk in my ways and I will bring you rest. I will bring you goodness. You will experience joy. Today would you take one step towards that life in Jesus. Towards intimacy with God.